Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Well, good morning. Happy Easter. And um, I wonder if you would keep that passage from John's Gospel open in front of you. Uh, We're still going to be on page uh, 1089. We're going to be looking at that together. Uh, I'm going to pray for the Lord's help as we come to look at this um, wonderful account of the first Easter morning together. So let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you so much for this record of what happened that first Easter morning. We pray that as we consider it together, you might help us to understand it, help me to express what it says clearly, and help us to believe it. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Two years ago, 2015, the comedian Stephen Fry was on an Irish TV show, a series called The Meaning of Life, and he was asked a number of questions about his opinion on um, what life is all about, is there any purpose to our existence, any meaning to life. Uh, It became famous, or perhaps infamous, it went viral on the internet because of the, um, the anger, really, that he showed towards the very idea of faith in God. And uh, maybe you will have seen a clip or two of that uh, particular interview. But it was a very interesting half an hour. He was asked a wide range of questions about his beliefs. And one of the questions he was asked is a very important one. He was asked the question, what happens when we die? What happens when we die? It's an important question, isn't it? When we think about the meaning of life, it's important to know when life ends. Does it end at our death? Or is there more to life beyond death and after death? Uh, Here's what Stephen Fry said in answer to that question. Uh, Anyone who thinks they know uh, uh, what happens when we die is either a fool or a liar. Anyone who thinks they know is either a fool or a liar. And um, there's a logic to that, isn't there? When you think about it, uh, there is one place we know for certain we will all go our deathbed, and there is one place to which we have no access at all, what happens after we die. And so you can see the logic of what he's saying, can't you? Of course, um, the force of it was somewhat undermined, because in his next breath, Stephen Fry confidently tells us what happens when we die. He said this, nothing, no loved ones, don't waste your time thinking that. You've got to make the most of the now. Uh, Stephen Fry thinks he knows what happens when you die. Is he right or is he a fool or a liar? Now John, who wrote this book, this gospel that we're looking at this morning, he thinks he knows what happens when we die. Have a look again at verse 31 at the end of our reading. Uh, John says this, But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And if you've read John's Gospel, you'll know that when he talks about life, he's not just talking about um, life that is full of meaning, although he is talking about that. He's not just talking about life that is full of joy and purpose, although he is talking about that. He's talking about life that begins abundantly now, and goes on through death and into eternity. He's talking about forever life. He's talking about life after you die. 
And John thinks that he knows what happens when we die. And the question is, is John a fool or a liar or is he right? And of course, that really is the issue that Easter is all about. Uh, Easter is not just about um, eggs and chocolate nests and um, all of those other wonderful things that we enjoy over Easter weekend. It's about this issue, eternal life. How can you save your life so that it goes on beyond death and into eternity? And the central event that we remember and celebrate on Easter Sunday The resurrection of Jesus Christ is both the proof and vindication of John's argument that we can have eternal life. Notice that John says the reason he is convinced he knows what happens when we die is because of things that he has seen. Um, In verse um, 29, Jesus says to Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who haven't seen and yet have believed. In other words, those who have read the testimony of those who have seen. Verse 30, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these ones are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Do you see, John says the reason he is convinced he knows what happens when we die is because of things that he has seen and recorded for us. I wonder if you noticed when John 20 was read out for us the number of times he uses words for seeing. All the way through the passage, a dozen times. Verse 1, verse 5, 6, 8, 12, 14, 18, 20, 25, 27, and 29. Again and again, John says, eyewitnesses saw something, and what they saw persuaded them regarding life after death. Uh, The chapter is full of the sort of vivid details you would expect from an eyewitness account. Uh, Let me just mention one, because I thought it was interesting. Um, Did you notice the first witness on the scene at the beginning is a woman, Mary Magdalene? Now, that might not shock or surprise us, but in the first century, in the ancient world, women had such a low social status that their testimony was not considered valid in court. If John had invented this story... Um, Some people think that the resurrection is, you know, fake news, a legend, something invented later. But if John had invented this story, there is just no way that he would have had a woman as the first eyewitness. He would have been under great pressure to remove Mary Magdalene from the story. And yet here we have John saying, this is what happened. This is what people saw on that first Easter Sunday. So two questions for us this morning. What did the witnesses see, and why does it matter? That's what we're going to think about. What did the witnesses see, and why does it matter? Uh, Two things they saw. First of all, they saw an unexpectedly empty tomb. Have a look at verse 1 with me again. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. I wonder if you can um, feel the shock of this scene, of Mary's words, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. You know, I think um, 
There's a danger that when we look back on these first eyewitnesses through 2,000 years of history, um, we can have a certain amount of chronological snobbery about them. Uh, we can rather assume that they were like the, um, the white queen in Alice in Wonderland, you know, the one who could believe six unbelievable things before breakfast. But they weren't. Ancient people were people just like us, and they had no expectation that Jesus, who they'd seen killed, would come back to life. Uh, the, um, uh, the first century Romans and Greeks found the whole idea of resurrection to be ridiculous. First century Jews believed people would rise from the dead at the end of time, but they had no idea of someone rising from the dead in the here and now. And so these disciples, they're not waiting in a vigil around the tomb, hoping against hope Jesus will rise. We're told in verse 19, they're hiding out in a locked room because they're terrified that they'll be rounded up by the authorities and crucified as well. It's unexpected. Mary goes to the tomb, Luke tells us, to grieve and to anoint the body in his gospel. The disciples knew the one thing that we know, Dead people don't come back. And yet here is Mary. She sees the stone rolled away from the tomb. She makes the obvious assumption. She runs to Simon Peter and the other disciple. This is how John often describes himself, the author. And um, she says to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've put him. The body, uh, was it grave robbers? Was it the authorities? I don't know, but the tomb is empty. It's gone. And so Peter and John, well, they leg it to the tomb. And John is faster. He's probably younger, but Peter is bolder. You know, if you've read the Gospels, you'll know that's true. Peter barges in there. Verse six, then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple who'd reached the tomb first also went inside. See, here are two more eyewitnesses, and they go into the tomb, and they find that Jesus is gone, and that the clothes he was buried in are neatly folded where the body had been buried. Now, this is interesting. Uh, in 1922, the um, tomb of Tutankhamun was excavated by um, British archaeologists. And one of the things they discovered as they dug up Tutankhamun is that the, um, the tomb had actually been robbed on at least two separate occasions before they got there. So lots of the precious artifacts that he was buried with were taken uh, the body was still there. You can go to the British Museum and see it. But the artifacts, well, lots of them were gone. And that's the point. When you rob a grave, the body isn't the thing you take. It's all the precious things it's buried with. That's what you're interested in. In the first century, linen was an expensive commodity. So how come you have a body that is missing and linens that are left folded where the body was? It's not, it's not historically plausible to think the body was stolen and the linen left behind. Uh, what about the authorities then? Could they have taken the body? Well, let me quote the historian James Montgomery. It passes the bounds of credibility that early Christians could have manufactured such a tale as the resurrection and preached it among those who might easily have refuted it simply by producing the body of Jesus. Do you see the point? If the authorities had taken the body, 
Why not produce it and embarrass the disciples as they preach that Jesus has risen from the dead? No, the tomb was empty unexpectedly. This is the first shock, the first thing that John says they saw with their own eyes. And we need to have an explanation for that. At a time and place in history, the place that they saw Jesus buried after he was killed is empty and the grave clothes are still there. A second thing that they saw then, an unexpectedly empty tomb. Secondly, in this um, chapter, we see a physically resurrected Jesus. Now, John mentions 12 different witnesses in this passage, although the New Testament talks of over 500 people who saw Jesus risen from the dead. But notice John focuses on two individuals in particular, Mary Magdalene and Thomas. Now, let's take a moment to think about what each of them saw So Mary Magdalene, verse 10, is outside the tomb, weeping. The empty tomb is heartbreaking for Mary. This man who she has followed over the last three years, who she's given up everything and and followed as one of his disciples and um, invested her whole life in, has been killed and she can't even grieve at his graveside because the body is gone and she's gutted until Jesus Christ himself stands next to her. In her grief, she doesn't recognize him, but he says her name. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. And hearing the um, familiar word in the familiar voice, she turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, that name that she would have called him again and again over the last three years. Now, I don't know, maybe you've been in that situation of having lost one that you love and being desperate to see them again, just to have one more conversation. And here Mary is greeted with the one that she has lost. But notice, it's not just wishful thinking. It's not just her imagination or hallucination. No, she clings on to this man who she meets in the garden. Verse 17, Jesus has to say to her, do not hold on to me. You get the point. She's so relieved to see him. It's like she's grabbing onto his legs. You know, um, sometimes I have that experience with my son. You know, it's time for the children to leave church and I can't remove the little guy from around my legs. And here is Mary in her relief and joy. She just doesn't want to let him go. Now she's got him back. But notice that this scene is not only personal, but it's physical. Jesus is really there. And it's the physicality of his resurrection that is front and center when he meets with Thomas later in the chapter. Now, um, I don't know about you. I love the sort of skepticism of Thomas. I mean, he's just, he's just a reasonable man, isn't he? Verse 25, the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But the thing is, dead people don't come back. And so he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side where I saw a spear shoved into him and blood pour everywhere, unless I can do that... I'm not going to believe that he's risen from the dead. Do you see, Thomas is not interested in group hallucinations, and he's not interested in a spiritual experience of Jesus 
if Jesus is dead and in the ground. Thomas says, I want to see the physical body of this man, and I want to be able to touch it and know before I believe that he's risen from the dead. Dead people don't come back. Verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. See, here is Thomas who wants to see a physical risen Lord Jesus before he's going to believe any of this stuff about resurrection. And here he meets a man who says to him, look, I've got the nail marks in my hands. You can feel them. You see, where the spear was inserted into me, you saw my blood and internal fluids pour everywhere as I breathed my last. Well, you can touch it if you want to. A physically risen Jesus Christ, and Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God. It's no wonder that John thinks he can tell us about life after death. It's no wonder John says, I can tell you what will happen when you die, because John says, I have seen life after death. I've spoken with life after death. I have touched life after death. That is what John is claiming here in these resurrection accounts. Uh, Two things that the witnesses saw on that first Easter Sunday in time and in space that we must explain. An unexpectedly empty tomb and a physically resurrected Jesus Christ. And look, these two facts of history are the beating heart of the Christian faith. They're the reason that we meet and rejoice on Easter Sunday. Sometimes people say to me, you know, in this sort of post-truth world that we live in, isn't faith just something subjective? I was speaking to a student from Germany a few weeks ago, and he was saying in Germany, you would never ask someone what they believe about God or about religion, because it's all just subjective, isn't it? It's about how you feel, and it's deeply personal. It'd be quite impolite to trespass on that. But you see, John tells us that Christian faith is not like that. It's not purely subjective. It's not wish fulfillment. It's not just what you choose to think about God. It's not just the crutch you need to get you through the day. It is based on something that happened in history that he saw. Objective historical data. Uh, Christian faith is not only plausible, says John, it is factual. And let me say, if you're a Christian here today, being convinced of this is the thing that will open us up to speak to everyone and anyone we know about our faith in Jesus Christ. Because yes, there are people who think that you're a fool or a liar if you tell them that you know what will happen to them when they die. But John says, we can know because of something that I saw in history and have written down so that you can believe it. Uh, it's revolutionary when we realise this. Uh, the, um, 
best-selling author and pastor from New York, Tim Keller, describes a time when he was in hospital um, for a number of months. And during that time, he read an academic book by um, an academic called N.T. Wright that was all about the evidence for the resurrection. And he describes that it was totally life-changing and ministry-changing because he realized again that Jesus really did rise from the dead. The tomb really was empty, and it just opened his mouth once again to speak to people about the good news. It's not just about what you feel. John says it's about what happened, an empty tomb and a physically risen Jesus Christ. Well, look, that's what the witnesses saw. Well, last few minutes, I just want to ask the question, why does that matter? You know, yes, uh, granted, maybe it happened. Why does it matter, though? And John shows us it matters because it proves that Jesus is the God who can give us eternal life. It matters because it means that Jesus is the God who knows what will happen to you when you die and can give you life that punches through death and into eternity. Have a look at what Jesus says to Mary in verse 17. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. See, all through John's Gospel, Jesus has been telling the disciples that he is the eternal Son of God, that he's come down from his throne in heaven to rescue people and that he's going back to heaven so that they can be with him for eternity. You can read about it again and again in the gospel. John 3 or John 14 would be good chapters to look at. Jesus says, I've come from the Father and I'm going back to him so that you can be with him too. But here's the thing. Jesus' death just blows a hole in that claim, doesn't it? Jesus says that he's God eternal, but he's dead in a tomb. um, About 100 years ago, the Titanic set out on its fateful maiden voyage, didn't it? And think about the Titanic for a minute. It was meant to be the unsinkable ship. And yet we look back on the tragic pride of that claim. Because, of course, it, it sank, didn't it? And let's be quite clear about this. If Jesus claimed to be God eternal but his bones are buried somewhere in Israel-Palestine, that claim is not true. He is not one that we can trust with our life and our death. But on the other hand, if the tomb is empty and Jesus has risen physically, if death could not hold him, then that claim to be God eternal is gloriously true. And Thomas was surely right to cry out in verse 28, my Lord... And my God, the eternal one that death could not hold, his claim that he was going back to the throne of heaven is vindicated. But not only that, but his claim that he can take us with him to heaven and give us eternal life is vindicated too. Uh, The Bible says that the reason that we die is because we've turned our backs on the God of life. Now, we might not do that in a dramatic way, in a sort of Stephen Fry way where we shake our fist at God and say, I hate you. 
But we often go through our lives as if God didn't really exist, don't we? Uh, Maybe we um, wing him a quick prayer before a job interview or um, if our child is due to be born or something like that. But um, day to day, we can often treat God as if he's simply not there and his world belongs to us. And the Bible says that in his justice, God gives us what we ask for, that at the end of our lives, we're cut off from the God of life. Uh, We get what we ask for, eternity, without him. But Jesus came and on the cross took our rejection of God. He died our death, the death that we deserve. He faced the judgment and the consequence that we should receive. And in his resurrection, that payment was vindicated. He punched through death. Death could not hold him. He demonstrated that there is life for people who deserve only death. And so when it comes to Thomas in verse 26, Jesus says at the end of the verse, peace be with you. Not a sort of warm, fuzzy feeling of peace, but the end of hostility between God and us. The end of eternal death and God's condemnation. Peace be with you. And if Jesus rose from the dead, he is the God who can say that. The one who has punched through death for us, who death could not hold. John says... He knows what will happen when you die. And he's recorded what the witnesses saw so that we would be convinced of who Jesus is, the God who can give us eternal life and would trust him with our life and our death. And the question that Easter raises is what do you make of the testimony? Is John a fool or a liar? Or could it be that he is right and what he records really happened in time and in space? That's the question that Easter Sunday leaves us with. Have a look at verse 31 again. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. We can trust him with our life and our death. Now look, it might be that you're here this morning and um, frankly, you've never really looked into the resurrection in any depth before. Uh, maybe you've, um, you've read about it on the BBC or some other highly reliable source, but you've never really drilled into the eyewitness testimony for yourself. And if that's you, look, I just want to mention two things that you could do about it this Easter. Um, one, um, I've got these little booklets, Resurrection, Fact or Fiction, I'm going to have a stack of them at each of the doors on your way out. They're free, and you can just pick one up or ask me, and you can have it. It doesn't commit you to anything, but this Easter, why not read it? It's about 50 pages, and it lays out in more detail than I've had time for the eyewitness evidence that Jesus really rose from the dead and a bit about what that means and why it matters. Um, But secondly, um, Paul's already mentioned the Christianity Explored course that we're running. Uh, These little flyers are um, in uh, the ends of the pews. There are some by the doors as well. Come along seven evenings to investigate the evidence that the eyewitnesses saw and ask any question you've got. 
Uh, we always wear our thickest armour, so there's no question too hard um, for me to ask Paul to explain later. Um, but why not come along to that? Or, um, or, or lastly, let me just say, um, it, for many of us here, um, we will um, be those who say, yes, I'm a Christian. I believe Jesus rose from the dead. Well, let me just say for you, one thing you could do this Easter is to read the eyewitness evidence again and allow yourself, like, um, like that author Tim Keller did during his time in hospital, to be convinced again by the evidence that Jesus really rose from the dead. You see, it's that that will fill us with the joy of Easter, and it's that that will open our mouths to speak to everyone we know about him. Because it's not subjective, your faith. It's not just about how you feel about life after death or what you would like to happen. It's not um, six impossible things to believe before breakfast. It's based on objective historical data that you can read and reread and allow yourself to be convinced by again. John says it's that as we read about these things that we will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that we'll realize we can trust him with our life and our death and life after death. And I'd like to challenge you, wherever you um, are on the, on, the sort of, um, on the spectrum of beliefs this Easter, to take up John's challenge and to look at the evidence this Easter and be convinced. Now I'm going to pray and I'm going to hand over to Paul who will be leading us in prayer after that. Our Lord God, we pray that this Easter we would indeed be those who take up what John and the others saw, who read it and are convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believe, and by believing, that we might experience that life that goes through death for ourselves. Amen.